In anticipation of Super Bowl 58 and the NFL playoffs, BetMGM has a brand new offer for the listeners of the Just Baseball Show. Place your first BetMGM Sportsbook wager through BetMGM Sportsbook app of at least $5. You will receive $158 instantly in additional winnings regardless of your wager's outcome. So how do you get this offer? Well, first, you're going to download the BetMGM Sports app on iOS or Android or visit BetMGM.com. Sign up and deposit at least $5 in to your newly created account. Place a wager in the amount of at least $5 at standard odds price. Once you have placed a bet, you will receive $158 in bonus bets regardless of the outcome of your wager. Disclaimer, betmgm.com for terms and conditions must be 21 plus to wager. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., New York, or Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER in Colorado, D.C., Illinois, Indiana, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Maryland, Mississippi, New Jersey, Nevada, Nevada, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, and Wyoming. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona, 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts, 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa, 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code JUSTBASEBALL and get $158 when you bet at least $5 on your first wager. Do it on BetMGM. Monday, February 26th here on the Just Baseball Show for all you beautiful listeners. We have a loaded show. I asked Aram pre-record and I said, do you want to also add top 10 center fielders to this? And I don't know exactly how you responded, but I got the gist. You're like, you're crazy because we have to talk about Cody Bellinger going back to the Chicago Cubs. We have plenty of notes from the first few weeks of college baseball and then some way too early takeaways for spring training. But the cherry on top of the episode, Walker Bueller is back from the Los Angeles Dodgers to speak with us about the last 40 minutes of the show. And it's all brought to you by BetMGM, the king of sportsbooks people. Put $5 down, you get $150 loaded into your account. Yep. All you got to do is use code just baseball, right? When you download BetMGM on iOS or Android, you put in the code just baseball, you deposit, you put $5 on standard odds, and you get $150 loaded into your account. It's an absolute no brainer. I wouldn't be telling you this unless I did it myself. Aram, you did it yourself too, because why wouldn't you? It's free money to use for the rest of the season. We got to talk about all the early takeaways to get ready for the season. How are you? You good? If, I'm great. If we did the top, if we did another top 10 in this episode, it would have been three hours long. 
we'd be here for it days. would have been oppenheimer basically same duration um so I, I was i'm down for it but i was like dude you and i already go on and then if we put that in there it, this is a feature film that we're going to be recording here like it's going to be real long and i know that we're going to end up talking about so many things with walker which i'm really excited about too because I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot going on. It's literally a circus and in, 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 in the best way possible in the Dodgers spring training right now. That first game was insane. I can't wait to ask him about that. So, yeah, we got a lot of things going on. Of course, Bellinger signs in like the middle of the night. But yeah, it's ridiculous, right? We get the alert at two thirty in the morning and I wake up. Right. And Jack is in right. Jack's uh, probably going to be on the podcast later in the week. Where is he right now? Is he in Sweden or something? I think he's in Sweden. He's, I think I he think was it's Sweden. He was our Norwegian correspondent. That's yeah. what Colby said in the group chat. I thought that was hilarious, right? Because he's the one posting about all these things at two in the morning because I think it's like 8 a.m. for him. I have no idea the time zones. But this episode is not about Jack McMullen's time zones. We yeah. have too much to talk about. I was going to ask you if you even liked Oppenheimer, that reference. Didn't but I don't it. really care. I don't think anybody else cares. You know I why I didn't should... see it? It's too long. It's too long. So let's get straight into it. So we have college baseball. We have spring training notes. And we have Cody Bellinger. But Cody Bellinger is the big story, so I want to start with him first. He just signed a three-year, $80 million deal with the Chicago Cubs. It's not quite $80 million. Bellinger is going to get $30 million this year, and then $30 million again in 2025, and $20 million in 2026. All of those are options, right? He signed a one-year, $17.5 million deal last season. Scott Boris Saga was looking for a big-time deal, but it looks as if right now he's signing that one-year deal. If he explodes again, probably going to opt out, and we have the same saga right over again. It's Monday, February 26th. We're probably going to have the exact same conversation about Cody Bellinger next year after he goes off again. Yeah, yeah. I, I think – so obviously the market didn't materialize the way that – you know, and, and no one really thought it would, right? When we saw those reports of 200 plus million dollars, everybody had the same reaction. And if everybody has the same reaction, it's probably not going to happen because teams probably had the same reaction. Of course, it was nice to see Bellinger bounce back last year, but we've talked about some of the underlying batted ball data, maybe not pointing towards the numbers being as sustainable. And then, of course, you have so many years prior, multiple years prior of him really struggling. I, I think he can be really good, but am I confident enough to give him 200 plus million? No. And I don't think any other team was either. So those, you know, brutal Boris puns, obviously, you know, loosening up their, their belts or whatever for the belly. Whatever. Like, I guess they technically loosened it up like a notch or two, but, but not that much. It's a great deal for the Cubs because like you have the safety here of really worst case scenario. It's, it's an $80 million deal where he's opting into the last two years. And you'd imagine just with the defense alone, it's that deal can't totally kill you, but you're probably assuming that he plays pretty well. And you know, in the market that we've seen, the way that guys are continuing to make more and more, and with the deal kind of being front-loaded, right, the third year is $20 million, that he probably does opt out at least in one of these two years here and, and hit the open market still before his 30th birthday, most likely. So it's great for both sides. And I think this was the most likely scenario. I think pretending that this wasn't kind of the market value for him at this point was a little silly. Of course, Boris does this thing where he's able to get outs for Bellinger if he performs, which is great for him. And for the Cubs, you know, they bring him back. They're happy about that. And for Bellinger, a little bit of safety as well in case he does fall flat, that he has a three-year, you know, $80 million deal as well. So I think it was a great deal for all parties. And, you know, I just think we got away from what reality was. Like, this should have always been what 
what was discussed as a deal. Um, but it's always weird when you hear a number floated and then it's a quarter of that. But at the same time, this is, I think, what the market value was. Also, I think there's a lot of Boris clients out there. You know, I think Cody Bellinger and Blake Snell are at the top of that list, right? Who wanted a ton of money. Blake Snell coming off a of Cy Young, Cody Bellinger coming off close to an MVP type season, wanting 200 plus million, but well, probably getting below that. I don't know about MVP type season. It he was, had a damn good season last year. MVP type is kind of crazy. Maybe it's a little overblown. You know, but he, season. He, it, was a, true. it was a good year. It was a good but, year. I, I over exaggerated there. The reason I brought that up is I wanted to contextualize some of the batted ball data for Cody Bellinger that probably, you know, Cubs fans don't want to admit, right? But the market was looking at, right, a very easy one. And we can go more in depth on this if if you want. But I like to look at Woba versus ex-Woba. Yeah. It's very simple right? Your quality of contact. And what did you deserve? Like, did you deserve those results? It's not perfect, but it's two easy numbers to look at, right? We're looking at a 370 Woba to a 327 X Woba. That is a bad sign, right? Sometimes when we project, we think this guy is going to be better. He might have a 327 Woba and a 370 X Woba. Like just to put that in perspective, Connor Joe, Michael Conforto, all had higher ex wobas than Cody Bellinger did last year. Yeah. Do you think that 80 million is right for a guy like this, where he put up that MVP season right back? I think it was 2019, disappeared basically, then put up a four win season, was a very valuable player for the Cubs last year. Like, do yeah, you think I, this is probably right? I think this is pretty much the market value after bouncing back because you see the defensive value that you're going to get there in center field. And then of course, if you want to stick him at first base, obviously if I'm paying a guy this much, I want him playing defense in center field, but even with some of the batted ball luck that you can point towards. And, you know, if you look at even some of his best years, it, the Woba and ex Woba were, were, were closer. So meaning, you know, the, the, the batted ball quality was, you know, more on par with the numbers that you saw last year, not as much. Sometimes there's guys that just over, always overperform those metrics and you need more than a one-year sample to say, Oh, that's one of those guys. So again, why I, I think teams were hesitant to give him five plus years, especially after struggling after the last couple, but given that, you know, in the worst case scenario, it's a, an $80 million deal that, you know, goes cheaper, right? The last two years are going to be two years, 50 million. I, I think it's a fine deal. And again, if he balls out, you know, it's really only a one-year deal anyways, so I think it's a great deal for the Cubs. I, I think when you look at it from Bellinger, still has the safety and the upside. And with Pete Crow Armstrong kind of waiting in the wings, I, I feel like they're in a win-win situation. If Bellinger's playing really, really well, then you know he's probably going to opt out and you, you got PCA plugging in there. If he does not play that great, you probably have an opportunity here to move him to another position, figure out how things are going to go. But I still think they have the contingency plan. It's not going to break the bank at at two years, 50 million over the next, you know, over the final two years. So I think they're in a pretty comfortable spot. And it, we were waiting for them to make at least one more splash here. And, and I think this was the right splash to make instead of trying to force something like Matt Chapman. Like I'd rather have Bellinger than Chapman for sure, assuming that it's in a, a similar price range too. I couldn't agree with you more, right? You talk about Pico Armstrong, but at the same time, it keeps the Cubs flexible within payroll, right? They're projected right now to be $32 million under the luxury tax. I think Jed Hoyer and, you know, and company kind of realize, hey, maybe this isn't the year that we go all in. 
but we still have a good team and then we have all these prospects when they're coming up so they can stay flexible like that. I think the reason, Arm, that I said he sort of had an MVP-type season is from a counting numbers perspective, the dude hit 307 with a 525 slug, put up an 880 OPS, a 134 WRC plus, 26 bombs, 20 stolen bases. That's not quite MVP, but I was looking at that thinking to myself, I mean, that was a damn good year, but you add in the quality of contact concerns, and I think there's just, I think there's a difference in opinion of the market, but overall for the Cubs, I think it has to be labeled as a win. Like, let's say he struggles this season, all right, you're not locked into some seven, eight-year contract. You got three years left on the deal. And even if and if he does opt in, it's not crazy expensive for a guy who does have the potential, right, to hit 300, hit 25 bombs, steal 20 bags, play outfield, play first base, can do a lot of different things for you. And you mentioned the defensive acumen. Even when he's not a great hitter, he can still provide value on the defensive side. I mean, we, we saw him have a positive war while being one of the worst qualified hitters in Major League Baseball. And you don't think he's ever going to get there again, even if he does take a step backwards or, you know, a lateral step. That's why I think it's it's a solid and safe deal. And, and I'm glad to see the Cubs continue to be aggressive because, I mean, this team can make some noise, especially in that division. It's also good to see Cubs fans kind of relax a little bit because yeah. I saw them just going after Ricketts, after their owner being like, you make yeah. a trillion dollars from Wrigleyville. Why are we not investing in the team? But I think overall they have a good pulse. Not the fans. I'm talking about Jed Hoyer and Ricketts. A good pulse on kind of where they are at. Like if I was them, I wouldn't have spent crazy either. I think the door is opening though. And I think the Cubs will have sustained success for the next half decade, depending on how these prospects work out. Now there's also a negative, right? What if some of the prospects don't blossom and Cody Bellinger looks a lot like those middling years between his his MVP year and then last year? There's also a downside to this, but I think more signs point to positive than negative. I'm just the asshole pointing out there's a possible negative. You know, I, yeah, I, I don't I think that's a negative no matter what. Right. Like what if they didn't sign Bellinger and the prospects didn't work out? Then it's even worse. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think this is a better position for them to be in. Um, I think it gives Pete Crow Armstrong a little bit more time uh, to continue to, to develop. And I know he's made some swing adjustments that I'm, I'm very interested in and excited about. And now he can actually see those, you know, translate maybe in AAA, not as much pressure to instantly contribute. And again, if Bellinger opts out after this year, then, you know, PCA will be ready and waiting in the wings. They got a good setup. And your boy, Brennan Davis. <laughs> Starting to hit the ball again. Hopefully he's healthy. It's all about the back for him. So the back's all right. If he's healthy, you know, we've seen him put up some crazy numbers. He was one of the best hitters in, in the minor leagues for a few years, but it's been nice to see him healthy and swinging it in spring. That's good. Let's talk about college baseball, right? Before we'll do MLB, the big signing of MLB. We'll do college baseball. Then we'll get back to spring training notes. And then, of course, Walker Buehler. So Hagen Smith, he's the headliner. 17 strikeouts through five innings. He had 15 strikeouts. You're hearing me correctly, folks. There's only 15 outs you can get in five innings. And he had 15 strikeouts. And I just thought, I mean, Hagen Smith, of course, is incredibly talented. But his first start was objectively terrible. And then yeah. the way he bounced back, and it wasn't 15 strikeouts against Manhattan College. It wasn't 15 strikeouts against Middle Tennessee. It was 15 strikeouts, or 17, excuse me against Oregon State, one of the best teams in the country. When Pete was on, right, they're one of my World Series picks. 
They're a phenomenal team. 17 strikeouts. He had a little bit of Rodon in him. 97 with just the slider from hell. Yeah. From a prospect perspective, after watching that, right? Because you as a draft expert and prospect expert, you're not just going to look at one start like I do and just start throwing out crazy terms. You're going to look at what he did his first start, his second start, all the starts, all the data. But from what you've seen from Hagen Smith, right now I want to talk about it because he's off 17 strikeouts. What is his draft profile to you? So it's funny you mentioned that. So we did our first, like, I did the first bonus episode of the call up where, you know, we're doing subscription bonus episodes on the weekend. And I I had to obviously talk about Hagen Smith's start and like how you look at that from like a draft perspective, because you don't want to take too much from one start, as you alluded to. But I don't know. Maybe we should. In this instance, (laughs) in this instance, you probably should, because, you know, when you're looking at the draft rankings going into this year, those were predicated on a Hagen Smith who was. 92 to 94, maybe grabbing a five or six. Um, And now you're seeing a guy that's, you know, in this start was 96 to 98, grabbing nines. And from that three quarter arm slot and with the stuff that he has kind of working off of that, the the slider, as you mentioned, disgusting, and even threw in some good changeups, like that's going to be a problem for hitters. Like that looks more like Ricky Tiedemann, whereas before it was like, you know, you could see what could be, we're talking about like Robert Gasser maybe, but when you get two, three ticks on the fastball from that arm slot, and it's not just on the fastball, then the slider's harder as well. And then you have more separation from the changeup. Like he made guys look uncomfortable. And you mentioned Arkansas left-handed pitcher here, right? This is a battle of two really good teams here. Two teams that could be in the college world series playing Oregon state, Oregon State's leadoff hitter, Travis Bazana, is arguably the best you know, pure hitter in college baseball. And if, if you don't want to argue that, he's undoubtedly and inarguably in tier one of the best hitters in college baseball. He made him look silly, dude. Like he punched him three times and it was like pretty quick work of him, too. And I know it's left on left. It's a disadvantage for Bazana, but I, I don't care. He was making lefties and righties look uncomfortable. And look, you, you have to start to adjust your thoughts on his draft stock off of that start, because we've never seen that version of Hagen Smith before. And especially bouncing back off of a, a really crappy start against James Madison. Um, it was really impressive to see him walk in like that. College baseball in a nutshell, right? We were talking pre-record about how it's been challenging for me to be betting on college baseball, right? We're lower in the units, right? They're half unit plays there for fun, but it's like, I'm doing research into these teams, right? And I was asked a lot about this game and I thought to myself, well, these are both two of my favorite teams in college baseball. You got Hagen Smith on the mound. I don't bet against Hagen Smith, but, and I wanted to take Arkansas, and they did end up winning. But at the same time, Hagen Smith just got blown up against James Madison. And then he comes out throwing 97 with a slider on a string, arm beyond just the stuff. He was throwing the baseball wherever he wanted on yeah. every pitch, didn't make a mistake all night. Mm-hmm. And it's those type of starts where I think to myself, does it really matter who was even in the box? No. Right. When it was that good. We're talking about 97, wherever he wants with the slider from hell. Like that's Rodon. That's where I got that kind of comparison where it was just heat top of the zone. Oh, it was, it was one of the most exciting pitching performances I've seen, even at the major league level. It was incredible. Well, what's amazing is I think he only had, I was thinking about it. So there's six innings. That's 18 outs. 
So only one out was not via the strikeout, which was one ground ball. So, like the, the fielders, the defense must have been bored as hell. Like, you're not doing anything out there. Nothing. Um, and usually it's like, oh, you got to you know work quicker. Like we're getting we're getting bored. We're on our heels out here. He was working quickly and just giving them nothing to do. So they were just jogging in and out, basically just doing suicides back and forth from the dugout to to their positions. Like, I mean, that that's something you just don't see. That's one of the most dominant starts we've seen from a pitcher in college in, in a long time, really ever. And and I think when you look at it from the lens of, of how loud the stuff is, I mean, we talk about Chase Burns. He's clearly the number one pitching prospect off of the stuff and things like that. But if Hagen Smith, and I'm not saying if he strikes out 17 every start, of course, then then it's a whole nother story. But if even if the stuff is looking like this in terms of fastball now, mid to upper 90s, that slider looking the way it did, now sprinkling in some changeups and being around the zone the way that he is, I mean, you can make a really strong case that you know he's the clear-cut number two pitching prospect in this class and kind of overtaking a couple of the other guys. Like If he's looking like this, I'm taking him over Brody Breck, too. Uh, oh, as yeah. loud as the stuff is, but like, you know, Brecht, he was good, but he walked, you know, that's the Iowa righty who yeah. was a NFL prospect. Not really, but he was a, a power five receiver for Iowa. And and now just focusing on baseball, like you can tell he's raw, walked six in his first outing. Also paid a bunch of people, but, you know, Hagen Smith looks like a very polished pitcher now as well. So I'm eager to see how he follows this up and builds on it, but you know, he's going to be a big part of Arkansas success this year. And I think we're going to get to see him on a big stage again. I also want to talk about a hitter that has just been tearing the cover off the ball. But I want to build off that point when you were talking about Chase Burns, because this Wake Forest pitching rotation is unbelievable, right? I'll talk about Chase Burns in a minute. But Josh Hartle, one five four ERA. It's not the same strikeout stuff, right? It's low 90s from the left-hand side, two walks, though. He's got great command, and he is just a master of limiting runs, right? I think he put it up an ERA below three last year for Wake, and is just continuing to do that. And right now, Josh Hartle is the Friday guy. And then we're not even talking about Michael Massey, who's thrown seven innings so far to one two nine ERA with 13 strikeouts. And Chase Burns actually bet on the under in Wake Forest versus Dayton, because I was like, oh, Chase Burns is on the mound. It, the total's at 15. As long as Wake Forest doesn't put up 15, we're fine, right? But I watched that entire Chase Burns start. The command wasn't there, right? He gave up a home run in the first inning. It didn't look as polished as when I watched Josh Hartle or when I've been watching Hartle over the past year and change, right? So I just wanted to bring it up because I think it's an, it's, it's an interesting conversation, right? In college baseball, a guy like Josh Hartle, is the Friday guy, which means he's the number one starter in Wake's rotation, or at least that's how they line it up, right? It could be strategic, right? Now we get Chase Burns against the Saturday guy, right? If Hartle can get us through Friday, we're going to win the series kind of no matter what, and that's what they have been doing. But draft prospect-wise versus getting college hitters out at a better rate, like from a run prevention stance, like how do you differentiate those two is more the question I wanted to ask because I'm not just going to ask you how good is Chase Burns how good is Hartle how good is Michael Massey they're all so good but how do you differentiate that is my big question yeah you know it's it's interesting because I think it's got to be one of those things where I want to see how Hartle consistently performs against some of the best 
players, you know, their best teams in their conference. Because even Hartle weirdly had a little bit of, for his standards, a little bit of command issues against Dayton as well. Hit a pair of batters, walked a pair of batters, which for his standards is like, that's a that's a, a wild yeah. game. I also gave up a bomb. But Hartle has been just, like you mentioned, Mr. Consistency because he's going to fill up the zone and he's going to get a lot of ground balls. So I think for now, I mean, I'm going with Burns because of his ability to to just he can single handedly win you a game. He's going to go out there and, and he could just blow away everybody. But if we get to ACC play and and Hartle's still flying through lineups and and really posting more consistent and safer numbers and you know, keeping runners off base and things like that. And Burns has kind of these ups and downs a little bit. I think you could go with a Hartle. But for now. I just I look at somebody like Burns and I'm like, if you're facing you know the best lineup in the country or or, or a top ten team, I think they're going to get to Hartle eventually. Where Burns could you know just cruise through like and single handedly just send you to the College World Series. Really like what Kumar Rocker did uh, to Duke to to put them away and go to the College World Series it was him versus Bryce Jarvis. Jarvis shoved Rocker shoved even more through a no hitter and the rest was history. So I, I think Burns has that capability. But, you know, Hardo, I think, is going to be the safe guy through the regular season. I'm still going with the guy that can legitimately twirl a no-hitter for you uh, if, if he's dialed in. I know this is something that you would probably mention as well, is that once you get to the big leagues, the margin of error is so much smaller, right? Like Chase Burns, when he's throwing 101, like you could throw 101 down the middle and still get swings and misses. If you're Josh Hardo throwing 91 down the middle, like most major leaguers are going to tee that up, right? So it's you get to these higher levels and this stuff, from Chase Burns is just so overwhelming where it's like Hartle has much, I think a higher pitchability right now than Chase Burns does. But if we wait for Chase Burns to kind of grow into that a little bit, then it's basically over. I think that's kind of what you're saying. Well, and, and I think just the better, the the better the lineups are, like you're going to face some really good ACC lineups that, you know, I think, can get to Hartle again. Like they'll they'll put up a couple runs on him. Like we looked at even even looking at the game logs last year. Like there's a lot of outings where he's given up three, four, or five runs. Um, you know, and and I think he's going to give you a shot every single outing. He's going to give you five, six innings, uh, sometimes seven, and be really consistent and fill up the zone. But again, like Burns can, no matter who is in the box. You talked about it not really mattering who is in the box. You know, when we just saw when Hagen Smith went like. Hartle, there's going to be situations where I think it matters who's in the box. With Chase Burns, if Chase Burns is on, it doesn't matter who in college baseball is in the box. His biggest competition is Chase Burns. Um, I think Hartle, it's it's a little bit different than that. So um, I, I think it's going to depend on conference play, how these guys look. But I'm still going with Burns in a winner-take-all because he could really win it for you himself. Yeah, but what if Hartle pulls a Hagen Smith and just starts throwing 97 with a slider? Yeah, th- then, <laughs> then it's game over. <laughs> then it's game over. Let's transition to the offensive side. This guy's going to go in the top 10 picks, and he's starting to have a conversation for the number one overall pick. His name is Charlie Condon out of Georgia. He's played seven games so far, Arm. He's yep. hitting 643. <laughs> Three bombs, five doubles, six walks, three strikeouts. So before this episode started, I wrote down his stats, right? He was hitting 609. He had three homers, three doubles, five walks. I'm sure you can piece two and two together for everybody listening. That means in this Sunday game, I think it was against Kennesaw State, he went four for five with two doubles. 
But I think the thing that separates him of potentially going number one, because we know the bat is just overwhelming. He's 6'6", 220 pounds, a mammoth of a man. But the fact, did I see him in the outfield? Yep. At first base, like, he's an athlete. When you're comparing, and I know it's tough, right? You're comparing a guy like Nick Kurtz to Charlie Condon. Nick Kurtz looks like he has such a better kind of setup at the plate. He hasn't got off to the hottest start like Charlie Condon has, but he's still obviously. I feel like whenever I'm watching a weight game, he's one for one with three walks. Like in every game, it's so many walks for Kurtz because nobody wants to face him. So if he was getting right fastballs that Condon's getting right now, he'd obliterate them. But Condon, I mean, he is the scariest hitter in college baseball to me right now. I mean, I, I would I would agree with that. The guy's hitting the living crap out of the ball, too. Like, it's not just about the fact that he's making contact the way that he is. And it's funny, when I was putting together our mock draft and and when I was watching more of Condon, this was before the season started, I legitimately sent a text to Pete Flaherty and said, is there any reasonable situation where Charlie Condon can go 1-1 because this swing is is different? And he's like, he's going to have to really hit. And I'm like, I think he might really hit. Um, I didn't think he'd do this out of the gate. Uh, and... I mean, we're talking about a guy that I, I'm pretty sure already has like six batted balls over 110. <laughs> like, I know it's with metal, but really the rule of thumb with metal, you can subtract like three to five miles per hour. Even if you want to be aggressive and subtract five miles per hour, like, all right. He hit a double 117 the other day. Like this guy's hitting the living crap out of the ball. He had a home run, uh, also 110. Like he's hitting balls really hard. But what's amazing is he's also making plenty of contact. Like for a six six guy that's this long to have – this efficient and and smooth of a swing into uh, the, the one thing he used as aggressive last year, cutting down on the chase, being more, you know, I, I think more well-rounded of a hitter. This is a guy that was a red shirt freshman last year, which is crazy. Like, I don't even know why he red shirted. He must have really made some strides in that red shirt time, but he was a red shirt freshman last year. So it's not like he has a ton of reps either. He's going to be a draft eligible sophomore, red shirt sophomore. And I mean, he is just exploding. Uh, I, I think this is a guy that could easily be one of the first bats off the board. Uh, I think people might side with the the track record of Kurtz hitting from the left side. Uh, but I think Condon can make this a conversation if he keeps doing what he's doing. I think also for Condon, right? Because Kurtz is playing first base, right? If Charlie Condon can play a serviceable corner, do you think that'll matter, right? Or do you think teams will just be like, just give us the better bat? Yeah. And they might just say, we still want Nick Kurtz, which is totally fine. I think Nick Kurtz is a manimal, right? Nick Kurtz is easily, I think he's still probably the best hitter in college baseball. I know there's JJ Weatherholt. I know there's Travis Bazana. Me personally, I have Nick Kurtz as the number one hitter in college baseball. When I'm talking about scary, right? And we're talking about potentially defensive versatility, maybe that's when he gets the leg up, right? We're talking about JJ Weatherholt if he can play short. That's maybe what levels up his draft stock a little bit. Travis Bazana, kind of the same thing. I'm curious if that matters a ton. I think the the bats would have to be like a, a yeah. almost a push, which is is unlikely. I think one of them is going to separate themselves a little bit. So I I think ultimately it's just going to be whose bat stands out a little bit more and 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 who fits the draft models and 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 who scouts you know are really raving about more for for let's assume it's the Guardians who the Guardians are taking. But it does help. You know, I think the fact that Condon is is a little bit more athletic than people thought in the outfield and now even seeing some action at third, like, I don't know about that, but, you know, I think he could definitely get by in a, in a corner. So um, that helps if if the offensive profile is super comparable. And I don't think it's crazy 
that that might happen. I think Kurtz right now is dealing with not getting pitched to. He walked four times his last no. game against Dayton. Like if you, if you watch weight games, he does not get a single pitch of the strike zone for basically the entire time. It's insane. So I think he's really worried. And, and I think Condon's going to start to get that treatment too for Georgia. Oh, but yeah. it's surprising because Wake Forest is so loaded. I wonder if they start playing with the idea of, of Kurtz hitting like leadoff. Um, the way we saw kind of the, the Schwarber situation sometimes with, with the Phillies, like having Kurtz hit a little bit earlier in the lineup, force them to pitch to him uh, because it, it's just it just seems like it's frustrating for him at this point, just not seeing anything in the zone. But that's a guy that when he connects to that swing from the left side is is up there with anybody. It's also got to be frustrating for college pitchers when you walk Nick Kurtz and you're like, all right, we got past Nick Kurtz. You know, he didn't. Didn't cause a lot of damage, right? We're not looking at any extra base hits. And then you go over to Seaver King, who's probably going to be what a first rounder, and then he's hitting bobs too. It's a very good team. Wake Forest has. Yep. They are the number one team for a reason. Yeah. Uh, but talking about really, really good teams, right? It's easy to say that Wake is really good and Arkansas is really good and all the teams at the top. But I wanted to highlight three and that are really doing a great job in my eyes. So the real deal of college baseball. Duke is 7 and 0. They beat 23 ranked Indiana. They pissed on George Mason 23 to 5. They beat 18th ranked Coastal Carolina. They beat a 4 and 2 Liberty team and then they swept Northwestern. This team Aram, and I know you got a lot of friends who have played at Duke yeah. a ton, so this is probably a team that's on your TV more often than not. You got Santucci on the mound and then an offense that I think people were we even talked to Pete Flaherty. I think people were just unsure what the offense would look like, right? With a lot of guys graduating, a lot of guys leaving. It's just, we weren't, we liked the offense, but we didn't realize it would just piss all over teams. And then the pitching is the strong suit and it still is a great pitching staff. This team could win it all. Yeah, Duke's good, man. I obviously kept up with them more with, with my buddies, as you mentioned. They were a game from the College World Series twice. Got beaten by... Uh, Josh Young and, and Texas Tech, and that team had a bunch of dudes on it too. Um, and then they got no hit by Kumar Rocker in the rubber match against Vanderbilt. So I mean, Duke's been there, been right there several times. They've been really loaded with talent. Even I mean, what what Chris Pollard has done there, um, you know, really since that first recruiting class that he kind of took over with, which included like Matt Mervis and Griffin Conine and uh, Jimmy Heron, who's in the Rocky system. Like they've built something pretty good here with Duke and. This is even with some of the guys that they've lost to the draft. Like they had Jordan Walker, uh, you know, signed to them as well. They had Evan Carter signed to Duke as well. Like they've had some dudes that they've lost out on on the draft, both of which, you know, people really thought Evan Carter was going to make it to campus. And then Jordan Walker was considered as actually kind of a 60, 40 leaning towards going to campus. So like, imagine if they had some of those guys over the last few years too. Duke is becoming a really legitimate program. And now you're seeing it again because of the development too. Like Santucci came in as a two-way player. Now he's really focusing on pitching. Now he looks like a, a slam dunk first round pick. Another guy that could be right in that conversation with Hartle um, as, you know, one of the better left-handers in the country. I think Hagen Smith now kind of elevating himself as the top lefty, but Duke's got a ball club, man, and and I'm excited to, to see what they do this year, but uh, they've turned into a power. So that's a great team in the ACC moving over to the Big 12. I mean, the Texas Longhorns look really, really good. Um, they're coming off three shutout wins against Cal Poly, which is a pretty good team, and a series win against a really good San Diego team who's kind of pissing all over Arizona, another team I liked. So those wins over San Diego makes Texas look even better but it was the pitching from this past weekend that I was watching LeBaron Johnson, eight inning shutout, Charlie Hurley, six inning shutout, 
Cody Howard, five inning shutout. The pitching has just been overwhelming for the Texas Longhorns. Like we know they're always a team that can hit, but if they have pitching like this, this is a team that can definitely compete. Moving over to the SEC Southeastern Conference, Alabama is 8-0. The competition has been kind of garbage, right? We mentioned a couple teams off the top like Manhattan, Middle Tennessee, right? Valparaiso, that's another college that they just beat the living piss out of. But I'm not going to ding them for playing bad competition because they have five mercy rules in eight games. So in college baseball, if you are ahead by 10 runs or more in the seventh inning, it's called, right? It's not like Major League Baseball, but in college baseball, let's say they're winning 11 to 1 in the seventh, game over, right? 13 to 3, 14 to 4, anything like that or higher, the game is called. They've only played three nine inning games so far because they have been pillaging teams. The offense just gets on you so quick and it's nines here before you even blink, right? The pitching just continually shutting them down. And when I watch Alabama play, while they are beating the living crap out of bad competition, there's a ton of talent on this team. So those are three teams that I've been watching this weekend beyond the obvious. Obviously, these teams are already good, but I just want to put them in the forefront to start including them in the Wake Forest, in the Oregon State, in the Arkansas, the LSU, the TCU-type ranges. These teams are overwhelming. Ben Ben Hess, Alabama right-hander, another, you know, just kind of names to watch, to tune in. Because I really – I enjoy watching college baseball for the draft prospects predominantly. That's really what I'm going to tune in the most. And um, Ben Hess looks like a slam-dunk first-round pick as well. Definitely a guy worth tuning into uh, for some of those big SEC matchups. And he's going to be a big part of – know what they do this year too we praise a lot of teams now it's time to figure out who's the fraud of college baseball right now and that is the stanford university one in five they lost two of three to cal state fullerton who is a fine team that's fine right but then you lose a midweek game to unlv then you lose two straight to penn state penn state at the time was listed as dogs of plus 300 or higher and penn state didn't just beat them beat the shit out of them Right. Stanford, man, they lose Brayden Montgomery to Texas A&M, who yeah, was their the best player. Goal. Right. That's top 15 pick. I, I think a guy that could play his way into the top 10. But Stanford is a great baseball program to be off to a start like this. And this is also a Stanford team that when they are good, they've been kind of fraudulent when it comes to the College World Series. Right. Getting to Omaha or at least performing in Omaha when they get there. But this I mean, this feels like rock bottom for a team that has been a prohibitive favorite now for the last 10 years, 20 years. I mean, this is the worst I've ever seen Stanford. Yeah, I mean, they have a six ERA starting pitching wise. They have a 10 ERA in the bullpen. Um, they're slashing as a team 253, 353-94. Uh, yeah, that's not great. And, and yeah. I know it sucks to to lose you know, a top 15, potentially top 10 pick. And Montgomery is one of my favorite bats in this class, but. Yeah, this is this is as weak as we've seen Stanford in in a little bit of time. Also lost Tommy Troy, but you know, first round pick, Diamondback system, really good player. But we usually see teams like this, schools like this reload, and uh, it doesn't look like they really reloaded much this year. Yeah, like for example, TCU lost Braden Taylor last year or from last year, and he was he was you know a top pick in the draft, right? They lost guys and they completely reloaded. And now they're number five in the country, right? LSU. Just lost Paul Skeens and Dylan Cruz. You think they're having a tough time right now? Absolutely not. Now, I'm not saying Stanford should be in that same exact conversation, but over the last 10 years, they have been in that conversation. So to come out this slow, 
against not the greatest competition in the world has just been extremely underwhelming for a team that I always just tend to root for and want to watch. And it's just been fraudulent. It's been absolutely fraudulent for the Stanford Cardinal. College baseball wrap up. Let's move on to some spring training notes again. Guys, we have some notes. We're going to overreact, or at least I'm going to overreact because that's who I am. But we also have to remember it's very early. Guys are just getting reps in. But Arm and I have a couple of points that we just saw and we wanted to share, right? Whether it's good, whether it's bad. I'm mostly focused on pitching because that's normally how I watch spring training. I'm looking, is your velo up there? How's your command early on? Because hitting, like, it just takes reps. Like, we know who some of the good hitters are. Like, it's not often, like, I remember Kyle Higashioka hit, like, a billion home runs in spring training, and it hasn't amounted to much. So, with hitters, I generally don't have takeaways other than the fact that Spencer Jones and Aaron Judge are both hitting 1,000, <laughs> which is just awesome for me. Juan Soto is hitting 500, and he hit a oppo bomb. Like, that's fun. It does not matter to me, yeah. right? But some pitching things for me headlined by Cole Irvin. Or, um, I mean, Cole Irvin. Our, our friend Brendan Mortensen warned us. Uh, you, of course, doing great stuff covering the Orioles. and He's just sending us a text like, oh, he's getting more horizontal run. He didn't mention he's also throwing harder with more horizontal run. So, I mean, the one trade that we were kind of saying, ooh, this might not be good because, you know, Daryl and I is probably going to be the starting shorts opera as a, a case to be in Oakland. All of a sudden... Cole Irvin might be good if they need him too. you know, with Gal Bradish going down, um, it's just and John Means kind of I don't know what the deal is with him. I think he's he's still dealing with some stuff and um, being a little bit behind where he wants to be like, I mean, this would be huge for the Orioles if Cole Irvin can even just be a serviceable four slash five. Like if he's a serviceable back end of the rotation starter, they're in a good spot. What if he wins the Cy Young because he's throwing 96 now? No, but seriously. The metrics on what he showed in his first spring training outing were absurd. I know it's a crazy small sample. It's the first day of spring training. Who cares? But I was just in awe. The cutter is up three and a half miles an hour. Yeah. His his average was 85. He was averaging 89 with the cutter. His four seam, he averages 92. He hit 96, averaging 94. The curveball is even going up two miles an hour. The sinker. He was hitting 95 with sinkers. Yeah. Changeup was even harder. And there was a couple of quotes here that I wanted to read from Jake Rill, who is the Orioles beat writer for MLB.com, who was speaking to Cole Irvin after the game. And Cole Irvin kind of had a quote that fired me up. I'm starting to buy in narratives. Maybe when we've got a full Camden Yards, maybe we see a couple higher numbers. End quote from Cole Irvin. I mean, what if he's 98 in a full Baltimore? You know, with full Baltimore fans at Camden Yards. And then from James McCann, the catcher, and I quote, it kind of caught us off guard, the velo, the way the ball was coming out of his hand. He also noted that Pirates hitters did not have comfortable takes versus Irwin today. I mean, should we bet on him to win Cy Young? What, what should we do? <laughs> um, I mean, it's exciting. It's a big development it's for them. Cool. And it's not like he threw like one inning. It was it was two. You know, because we saw like a one inning spurt last year where he, I think he averaged 94 in that one inning, but he never touched six or seven. Um, so to see him, you know, breaking six and you know, might even have more in the tank as he as he continues to to build up, like that's exciting. Um, I love that. I love that he's already feeling himself velo wise. Like, oh, if we pack the house, like you know, maybe I'll show you triple digits. Like you know, you know, we'll have to find out. You might have to pack the house. So I, I'm pumped. I, it's fun. 
I'm I'm all 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 the way on the Orioles bandwagon, but I, I love the unsung heroes and some of the like underrated contributors, you know, potentially helping this team over the top because they're going to need that. And uh, I mean, this, this is definitely something that you have to like. We're not adjusting our you know perspective just yet, but you're I don't know. Key- you're keyed in. <laughs> you're keyed in to yeah. be prepared to yes. adjust your your expectations. I think that's exactly the perfect way to put it. We're keying in, and we're watching. And what I just watched got the attention. Cole Irvin throwing ninety six, and I went to go look up arm because I was like, Cole Irvin's probably what thirty three, thirty four. He's thirty. Yeah, I thought he was much older than he is. He's thirty, right? Maybe this is a renaissance. I'm yeah. in. Maybe I'm this is an up. emerging ace. This might be an emerging ace. <laughs> Shout out Danny Duffy. Shout out. He threw actually the other day. I was going to text you. I saw Danny Duffy. I forgot. Was he, was he emerging? He's emerging. He's, he's, he's emerging emerging back up. He's back. That's one of the funniest funniest bits for any of our new listeners. I was such a total moron. I think in 2021, like we first started the podcast and we were talking about pitchers that we really like. And Danny Duffy is from my hometown and I was trying to hype him up a little bit. I called him an emerging ace. And then I think either you or Jack. Jack was like, whole, he's like 33. He's like 31, <laughs> dude. And I'm like, is he? <laughs> and then, you know, we know what happened to Danny Duffy. Um, do you have a takeaway? I have a couple more. Um, just a couple rapid fire, like just yeah. things that like I'm looking at from like younger players, uh, younger arms. Again, we talk about VLO being a big key. Landon Knack, like Dodgers pitching prospect to uh, people have kind of been wondering, okay, where does he fit in? Is he going to get an opportunity? And he's put up some really good numbers in the past, but injuries and stuff have kind of caused his velocity to fluctuate. And he's a guy that's very dependent on that. We've seen him sit 93, 94, even averaging 95 with the fastball sometimes. But then we've seen him as low as 90 to 91, which is where he was at uh, at the end of the season last year. I know it was only two innings of work, but his final outing at the end of last year, he went two innings uh, and, and averaged 90 with the fastball. Two innings in the first spring training appearance, strikes out four, nobody reaches base. He was sitting 94 and touching six. So that was really impressive seeing the change up. I mean, that's his best pitch. So having the fastball with more life, it allows the change up to play up more. And, you know, Landon Knack looked pretty damn good. And with Pepe out, you know, out, you know, being sent over to to the Rays in that glass now trade, and there's a little bit more importance on Knack, especially, you know, as they try to fill in innings in the, in the early part of the season. Uh, I think Landon Knack's a guy that, you know, I'm, I'm excited to see what he continues to do if he can hold that velocity because that's been the trouble for him. But, he looked damn good in his first appearance. No doubt about it. If we're still talking about Velo, I was really impressed with Nathan Eovaldi, right? Because he's a guy who, you know, has dealt with TJ. You're always looking at the Velo with him. Always yeah. looking at Velo with Nathan Eovaldi because it's so important to him. Obviously, he can pitch, but when he's 96, 97 at the top of the zone, he goes from a number three starter to potentially an ace like we saw in the postseason. Averaging 96 in his first spring training game, right? Last year, he averaged 95.2, 95.7 the year before. So it was good to see him at least maintain that type of velocity in the early goings. And, you know, my favorite pitcher maybe of all time at this point, Cole Reagans, two innings, five Ks. Lance Brzdowski, uh put out a tweet. The last strikeout to Zach Neto, 101 with 20 inches of IVB, induced vertical break. Yeah. That's, what the fuck? I mean, that's that's an off the charts fastball. That's like, off the charts. That's Strider at his peak. Yeah, it's that's, that's from the left side, and Cole Reagan says four other pitches. Dude, we, it, like we might have to if he can sustain that because he's a double TJ guy too, which is yep. interesting. So like, you know that that part is a little. I'm just like always worried about 
what the VLO may look like if there's fluctuations, but there hasn't been yet. I mean, that's a guy that I might sprinkle on a Cy Young just because he, that's that's alien stuff. Like that's freakish stuff. People forget this was a first round arm. Like he is very talented. He's just dealt with a lot. Clearly something's clicked. I hope he can stay healthy because, I mean, you can't teach that shit. Can't teach that shit. So that's the end of the spring training notes, unless you have anything more before we talk to Walker. Um, no, the last one, the last thing I mentioned real quick is just uh, Yuki Matsui. Um, San Diego Padres signing. Like He looked nasty. And you look at swing reactions from hitters. Like That's another thing that you can kind of pick up in spring training. Hitters looked super uncomfortable against Matsui. Um, that's something that, Stood out to me because I think he could pick up saves for them this year. I think he's going to be a really good high leverage arm for them. So um, talked about that. It kind of broke it down more in the bonus call up episode. But Yuki Matsui, uh, he might be a dude in the back end of the bullpen for the Padres. It's a good segue talking about a San Diego Padres pitcher that we think is going to go crazy this year. Now let's talk to a Dodgers pitcher who we expect the same from. But before we talk to Walker, a quick break. Walker Bueller is back on the Just Baseball show. And of course, as it's been going for the last month or so, it feels like every time we get you back, there's just so much to talk about. We're going to talk about Bring Your Daughter to Work Day, which was the first that you could ever participate in. Really (laughs) excited to hear about that. We got spring training updates. It's been a circus in the best way possible, I think, at Camelback Ranch. So excited to hear your perspective on that. Um, And then, of course, that 14-run uh, spring training game that started things off. Walker, how's it been going for you so far? And, and how much fun has it been at Camelback Ranch? No, it's been good. Obviously, you know, some new faces and, and a lot of people around, a lot of a lot of buzz. But, uh, yeah, it's been good. We got, got some guys playing good already, as you said, 14 runs and some young guys throwing good. So, uh, yeah, springs off to a good start. I was just going to say that's going to be the typical Dodger answer all year, right? They put up 14 runs in a spring training. He's like, yeah, the guys are going pretty good. You know, it's just typical, right? It's it's the Beatles. But I also asked you a stupid question off the rip. And I was like, oh, where are you calling us in from right now? You're like, oh, I'm in Phoenix. I'm at spring training. You dumbass. You're worldwide. You're always around. But I do want to ask you, the baby, bring your daughter to work day. Let's start with that. Yep. That was the first thing I put on our topic list because, I mean, she looks adorable. Yeah, she is. She uh I keep telling everyone I'm just glad she didn't come out looking like an alien, but uh, no, Finley's pretty cute. We're we're very happy and, and very excited trying to – my wife's been a trooper. She's not sleeping quite as much as, as she's letting me, but uh, no, things are good. What would you say the uh, the biggest adjustment has been to to fatherhood? Obviously, you know, you've, you've got a lot going on on the baseball side, but just being able to balance that now and, and – kind of getting the taste of being able to balance that now as, as you get into the season. Yeah. I mean, I listen, it's still, it's still early. We're, we're less than a month into this thing, but um, no, I, I, it's hard to explain how, um, how much I feel like having three dogs, like kind of prepared us in, in some weird way. Just, you know, I, I think having one dog is nothing like it, but we have a, a whole house full of the little maniacs. So um, it has helped significantly, but no, I mean, you basically just live in like three or four hours at a time in between, you know, eating, pooping and, and sleeping. So, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of all there is to it at, at this point. I think right now it's a little bit easier than, than teenage daughter will be. So we're just trying to savor, savor the baby time. What's worse, the diapers or the lack of sleep? You know, I'm, I'm pretty lucky. My wife is, is very on top of it. So, um, uh, the, the lack of sleep hasn't been a real, real concern for me yet so uh the diapers i suppose 
So you get all the good parts of being a dad. Exactly. Yeah. Well, what was it like bringing her around the ballpark or just around the complex? I'm sure people were just, I mean, there's nothing like a baby. You, you've even grown the toughest yeah. guys in the world will, will kind of melt to when, when they see a baby being, you know, brought around, especially when it's yours. And, and I know everybody must be so excited about just you being a father and, and having your first kid. What was that bring your, your daughter to work day kind of like for you? And, 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 and how did it feel? Yeah, it was cool. My I wasn't super thrilled about my bullpen, so having her there was <laughs> was better. Kind of kind of resets you a little bit, but now everyone keeps telling me I smell more responsible, so I look mm. look and smell more responsible. So uh, I guess I'm growing up now. Who to, who who told you that? Like which player was it? Like a group of players where it's like you know we we feel a different vibe about you, Walker. Yeah, I think it was a consensus kind of, but uh, I think Barnes may have said may have dropped that line. So I learned last time um, not to call it rehabilitation process, not to call it the rehab, but I've learned my lesson, Walker. How's your arm? Yeah, uh, things are good. Things are good. I think uh, I don't think it's out there yet. I think I may be facing hitters on Tuesday. So that's kind of the the next step. Obviously, we did it, did that a few times last last year and, you know, in the build up to the game. So um, another kind of box to recheck and, and get it going. But um, my last pen was a little bit better, kind of got the body going and, um, yeah, it's these weird cycles, man. You, you know, you get hurt and then start playing catch and you're basically making every throw to not hurt, right? You don't want it to hurt. So your body kind of takes over and, and you throw with your body and then your arm feels better. So your body kind of takes a, takes a break and you start throwing every ball with all arm and then you have the off season. And so. Um, yeah, getting back into it, trying to get everything to kind of work in sync has been a little bit of a work in progress, but, you know, I think there's also part of it where I'm very tinkery all the time and trying to make this different or this different or whatever. And, um, you know, trying to get back to kind of just throwing and, and feeling good about it. And then we can start progressing. So, um, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling good, but you know, Tuesday is a, a big day. For, for fans and just like listeners to understand the, the difference, because it is, you know, just always when, when you're even talking about the rehab side, but just in general of just getting yourself ramped up for the season, there's a big difference between bullpens and then facing live live hitters. But for you as a pitcher in those spots, like what's the difference for you in terms of what you're looking for and looking to get out of it compared to a bullpen uh, and, and of course, facing live hitters? Yeah, I mean, you're looking for like an uptick in velocity, obviously, probably, you know, we kind of. The way I've always looked at it is between cleats and facing cleats plus game. So a lot of times we throw bullpens in the off season and stuff on turf mounds, especially if you're not from California or, or warm weather places, you're throwing on turf without cleats. So for me, I've always felt that a hitter plus turf or plus cleats should be about four to five miles an hour in general. So if you're throwing 90 on turf, you'll probably be throwing 94, 95, something like that in a game. Uh, at least that's how it's kind of been for me personally. So, um, you know, I've been doing the cleats thing had, had obviously been in LA for, you know, all of January and, uh, was feeling good about it. So hopefully we see a little bit of, a little bit of uptick. And, you know, I think the, the way to kind of think about it is like, if you walked outside of your front, you know, your house and tried to run right now, like there's a certain threshold that you could run, but if, I was there and raced you, you would throw a little bit, you would be able to run a little bit faster. Right. So uh, I think it's kind of that theory or, or that, you know, I guess, reality that, you know, when you're facing guys that, you know, and 
you know, if you give up a homer, you'll never hear about it. Like just a good soft buildup into, into getting into games. And, um, you know, I imagine I'll throw to hitters, you know, a lot of times I'm still hoping to pitch in a cactus league game or two at the end, but I think this is kind of where we're going to be most of spring training for me. I'm interested in what you said. Um, the I think the answer right before this one where you were talking about your bullpens and you were talking about tankering. Mm-hmm. Like those intricacies, because you know, you're a pitcher who knows your arm. You're a pitcher who knows your stuff. And you know that when your stuff is at the top, you're gonna be one of the best pitchers in baseball. So when you talk about you're a tinkerer, I like that term. What does that mean? What are you tinkering right now? Um yeah, I'm always I think slider is probably the most unnatural throw for me. Um the pitch I probably have thrown for the least amount of time. Obviously, changeup I don't throw many of, and but before my first surgery, I threw a lot of changeup. So, um, slider is probably the most unnatural one, and I'm kind of always trying to find one that um, comes out of my same throw, and I can create the the same the right amount of um, velocity difference plus the size of it. There's kind of some sweet spots in terms of you can get away with it being bigger if it's slower or harder, being smaller, things like that. Um, and I, I generally have a pretty, I'm pretty predisposed to making everything a little bit too big and not quite hard enough. So, um, especially the spinning pitches, just because th- there's pronating guys and there's supinating guys and supinating guys are the guys you'll see that are more like myself that are cutter, slider, curveball, everything that spins. You'll see pronating guys that are typically more sinker change up. Um, and they have to kind of work and find a ball that goes left for them. So as a guy that's kind of stuck supinated, a lot of times it's hard to be behind the ball enough to create the velocity that you want on certain pitches, especially slider for me. So when, when you get into those live ABs and, and get that opportunity, like in those live settings to be able to work on what you want to focus on. But you also mentioned that there's some competitiveness to it, right? You you want to be able to get yeah. these guys out. You don't want to give up the bomb. Uh, how's the juggle between what you want to work on versus just, oh, I kind of know what what I want to do to this hitter or, or this guy in this situation. Uh, because ultimately the goal is to get ready for the season. But you mentioned like there's competitiveness on the backfield. You don't want to give up yeah. a bomb to some of these guys that you might be facing. Yeah, I mean, I I used to try and get my closest buddies to hit. That was always like my thing, um, just to kind of get moving and and get your brain kind of focused on competing more than anything. And um, Miguel Vargas has been running running his mouth a little bit, so we're hoping to get him in there. <laughs> uh, I told him I told him he started talking too early because now I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna go scout him and do all that stuff. So. Um, you know, I think he was thinking more of just like run it out there and, and throw it across the plate, but he'll probably get the full like playoff scouting treatment. Just him though. I love that. Nicole Vargas just dug himself a hole and just building off that has nothing to do with spring trading. It has nothing to do with, with, you know, your arm right now. Has there been in your major league career so far, any time where an opposing player or maybe a coach or maybe a player on your own team talks some shit to you? and got you fired up to face them. Like, do you have a story like that? No, I mean, Jock always does some crazy stuff when he faces me. I think he bunted like four times one year and three of them were <laughs> against me. Like he just always does stuff like that. Um, that's, that's very much his personality. I think that doesn't surprise anyone that he would do that, but um, you know, facing guys that you know is always kind of interesting and, and especially at the big league level, like guys that you played with in college or um, know pretty well. And, 
I think at one point there's a, we I played against this guy named Steven Duggar. I had known him from uh, my first couple of years in spring training and running around and whatever. And I think, I think I've thrown three backdoor cutters intentionally in my career and they've all three been to Steven Duggar. And it just is like, there's just some weird stuff that ends up happening like that. Or you'd like find something in a scouting report or t- in talking to someone that you don't really do, but you know that you could try and do it to them and it would kind of be all right. So, um, yeah. And then I think I threw my first change up in like three years to him and the same at bat. So I don't know. I kind of, maybe that was a little mean of me. Wait, I have a, I have a quick follow up to that to the inverse, right? Maybe even dating back to your time at college. Was there any time where you talk shit to somebody and then you were like, Oh shit. Now I got them angry. Um, no, I mean, I kind of assume that I do some stuff on the mound. That's like not super like kosher all the time. So <laughs> I kind of uh, assume that people um, are are highly motivated when when they face me in some way, but um, you know I think we've kind of seen the there were some not memes but whatever little videos of me yelling at some people and and all that from when I was younger. So we want to keep it. I probably maybe try and clean it up a little bit. Well, a, a no guy bull, that you- no bulletin board material. That's what I was saying. You didn't know, like Bryce Harper and Orlando Arcia. Like, you don't want to get in a situation like that. Maybe the Bryce Harper side, but not the Orlando Arcia side. I'm sure Bryce fans are still like, you didn't say anything. Well, I don't know. Didn't matter. Who knows? Uh, well, Cody Bellinger, a guy that you haven't been able to face because the timelines haven't yeah. matched up yet, right? But but now you you, you will. Uh, Resigns with the Cubs. I obviously think it's it's a great spot for him. And we've talked about him a bunch on the show, but just wanted to at least briefly talk about it. One, are you excited to potentially face him now uh, this coming season? And two, you know, what do you think about him staying in Chicago? You know, we we didn't know where he was going to end up. We saw him bounce back in a big way. You've talked about it being a, a good fit, you know, for that bounce back. But you know, what do you think about the deal for him moving forward? Maybe not quite what was floated in the beginning of the year, but seems like a a, a great situation for both sides. Yeah, I mean, this whole like Boris five thing has been kind of interesting, um, especially as we get this late into spring training. But, you know, I think for a long time, a lot of people kind of assumed that Cody would be back in Chicago. So um, it's it's an interesting deal. Obviously, if you look at what he was on last year, it, it's a, a big jump in, in like the annual pay for the first year. And, and he's got the opt out. So uh, there's the argument to be made. It, it, he really signed a one for 30 and and but also having those other two years as player options is, is great for him in terms of, you know, I guess financial security is probably not the right word just because of what he's kind of made. And yeah, I mean, it's obviously a drastic amount of money, but uh, you know, at some point we were talking about Cody being a $300 million guy and, and, you know, he's had the flashes of that in multiple years. Right. And so he's, he's done it. He's super accomplished. And, you know, I think, he deserves, especially knowing him and playing with him, like he could play, he could win a gold glove at four different positions and, and obviously has, has had a, a lot of big offensive seasons. And, um, you know, I, it stinks because of the shoulder. We never really know how much that affected him or, or affected kind of those couple of years there in the middle. But, you know, I think he's shown when he's healthy, he's a, he's a well above average major league baseball player. Speaking of the rest of the Boris clients um, in the media, you know, from podcasters like ourselves or writers or, you know, it's just mostly a bunch of fat people sit on a couch and and watch baseball. But coming from a pitcher himself, how important is it to be in spring training early, 
right? Because I, I made the point, I think, on a couple of shows ago where I said they've all been to spring trainings before. Like Blake Snell, Jordan Montgomery, they've been here before. They know how to ramp up. But there obviously is a difference between doing it right in maybe your backyard off a mound or with yeah. a trainer somewhere versus being on the field, being with the team. Like how important is it to be there when the team comes for guys like Blake Snell and guys like Jordan Montgomery for the fans of teams that are going to get them. Do you think it's a big deal that it's taking this long? Um, yeah. I mean, I think the, from the pitching side, it's a little bit more concerning than a hitter, right? Just our buildup is very like, it, it just, it takes time. And, and the position guys, like if you show up in really good shape, you can play three innings and you can play five, then you can play seven. Like it's not as, difficult from a performance standpoint they need to get their timing and all of that stuff uh, you know at the plate uh but for us it's it's like a conditioning and uh performance aspect of of our buildup so i think it's a little bit different I, I think our team and the padres probably see it a little more biased just because we're a little ramped up earlier we were out in spring earlier and and start the season a little bit earlier than everyone else so um i think that would be I don't want to say a concern. Obviously, both those guys pitching wise have been super successful and um, you know, our pros, like it's it's not their second year in the big leagues, right? So they they know what they're doing. But um yeah, I mean time time doesn't stop, man. It it just keeps we just keep inching closer to it. So, you know, I imagine we'll have some some action this week. I know Cody and and with circling the Kike have been, you know, down to a couple teams and whatnot. So uh, yeah, I think stuff will start moving this week. Did you see, uh, just real quick, Arb, did you see on social media, I saw this uh, going viral. It was like some person quote tweeted, like, Kike Hernandez is down to four teams, and then someone photoshopped, like, Kike with the decision, like, from Miami. I just thought that was hilarious. <laughs> no, I, that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me that much, actually. I don't know if you guys ever saw his engagement pictures or or whatever oh, he yeah. took. They were, they were pretty good. That's why I brought it up. I feel like he loves it. Like this yeah. is great for him. Did, no, he's did, a good dude. Did that get brought up in the clubhouse? I mean, those pictures were something else. Like that had to be a, a conversation in there, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think from my recollection of it, there was like a, Hey honey, I want to do pictures. And he was like, the only way I'm doing them is like this. And so I guess they settled on, on what they did, but uh, yeah, those two, they, they go all in. So they came up pretty good. I love it. I love it. Well, I want to just talk about, you know, we've, we've discussed in the beginning, you know, already the buzz that was at, you know, spring training for the Dodgers, but now you've had a little bit more time to, to really soak it all in. And now we've had some Otani live ABs. Uh, We've seen Yamamoto start to throw a little bit more Uh, kind of a two pronged question here from your perspective of just what you've been able to see now, you know, up close and personal with Otani ABs, a little bit more of Yamamoto throwing, but what's the media spectacle been like as well in terms of like, have you ever seen anything like this for a spring training or anything even close to this? No, I mean, the media stuff is obviously different, just a different level amount of people. Um, but, uh, you know, I think we're all settling in like, I, you know, the, how's it feel to have Shohei on your team questions or, or like the basic stuff is kind of, died off, which, you know, I think is very natural. He's, you know, we've been in spring training for a little bit now, but um, yeah, we're excited to see him, see him out there. Both those guys, I, I think they'll be in games this week. I saw. So um, yeah, you know, Yamamoto has been really impressive and, and obviously Shohei is, is him. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens, but you know, we're, we're excited and, and everybody's kind of gearing up and getting ready for, for Korea and, and, 
getting excited for those two guys to to go with the team. And, you know, I think it's going to be nuts over there. So how does it feel to have Otani on your team? I'm just kidding. No, but I do, I do want to know kind of what you are seeing in person from these guys. Not Shohei Otani because everybody knows he's quite possibly the most talented baseball player to ever put on those fanatic see-through pants. But I'm ta- I really want to know about Yamamoto, right? Because come over for the MPB, he hasn't thrown a pitch in Major League Baseball, gets $325 million. So every single piece of video I can watch him throwing in the bullpens or just anything about him, I immediately latch on, right? Because he could realistically come over and win this Cy Young in his first year, right? Especially from what we saw with Kodai Senga finishing in the top five of Cy Young voting. And Yamamoto has a much higher prospect pedigree and he's five years younger. So we all know Otani's great. Watch like seeing him hit bombs is really, really cool. But I really want to know, and I know it's such a basic question, but what have you seen so far from Yamamoto? Yeah, I mean, obviously, you know, it's kind of out there, like all the javelin and, and the way he works and stuff like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you do whatever you want as long as you throw the ball hard and, and where you want it. And, you know, I play catch with him and watch him throw bullpens and stuff. And he spins the ball great. There's a lot of, you know, juice behind his his heater. And, you know, I, I think the only thing we'll see is just the ball change. I know that's been a real thing for some guys that have come over and takes them a little while just because our ball's a little bit, a little bit bigger than, than the one they play with over there. So, but outside of that, man, it's, it's hard to kind of, you know, be adding a guy that's been a professional for, for a long time, still 25 years old, one MVPs over there, like very accomplished baseball player. And then gets to come over and, and you can see he's like juiced up and, and excited and, um, you know, it's not always, not always easy for guys that are that accomplished to get real excited, but he is, and, and we're glad to have him. Do you, do you feel like the, the buzz at spring training is almost a little bit of like a, a preparation for what this season's going to be? Because I, you're the Los Angeles Dodgers. You, you guys are used to, to being the center of attention and, you know, and, and the focus of, of media, whether it's local or national and just the baseball media in general, but just kind of knowing that it's going to be a different beast this year has spring training almost been a little bit of a primer for you guys uh, to get used to that. And then even for some of the younger guys, again, you've been there, done that, you know, with the Dodgers for a while now, but for some of the young guys that are on this team, like it's it's one thing to adjust to the big leagues, but you're also adjusting to a big league team that is, you know, the the focus of not only the major league baseball world, but you know, one of the key focuses of the sports world. Yeah, um, no, I mean, I think it's great. I, you know, I, if I look back on on kind of my career and the team that I came up with in '18, like the the names on that team probably aren't quite what we have now, but like there were guys that we really respected and, and had played a long time, you know, trading for Manny that year and <laughs> Brian Dozier and, and some of these guys, like, you know, same thing, like guys that I grew up watching play. And and now, you know, if I was a 21 year old in the chair, right. Like you're, you're feeling largely the same way. And, you know, guys from kind of all over the league that have been really successful that, that now are on our team. And, you know, I guess you could even say not just our league, but have from all over the, the world, right? And so, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense why why we're getting covered the way we are. And um, I guess it's hard not to be when you spend the kind of money that we did and, and bring in the kind of players that we did. But, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, it's about playing 162 good games and, and then getting hot at the right time at the end. So uh, I think the, the goals and the, 
the kind of process hasn't changed. It's just now there's a, a lot more articles about it. A lot, a lot of more articles, especially when you spend a billion dollars in an offseason. <laughs> um, talking about those, you know, old daughter teams to new, um, I saw that Matt Kemp was brought in in an advisory yep. role. It's got to be pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I like Matt a lot. He was he was really good to me the the year that we played together, and um, you know, I, I think it it'll be helpful. He's a guy that kind of uh, was that center of attention and was the the superstar in LA for a long time, and you know, lived the whole thing and had been in the media. So, you know, I think not that like Shohei or Yamamoto really need it, but maybe some of the younger guys just kind of learning or having a guy like him that's been there and done it to say like, Hey, you know, here's the potential downfalls of saying stuff like this or or how to handle media or or whatever, um, as well as kind of the on the field stuff. But yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to seeing him and, and kind of seeing what, what role they they have in mind for him and, and how much he's around. So something that Peter and I were talking about kind of in the first part of this episode, and it's been a, kind of a topic in general, fans become so hungry for baseball and so hungry to just see anything new because the whole offseason, you're just only looking back at whatever numbers and stats we had from last year that we get a lot of small sample size theater and a lot of people getting excited about whatever they can get in spring training. That said, there's a reason why we have spring training. You guys are working on things. You guys are trying to get going and and feel things. And I guess from a player's perspective, I think it would be really interesting to just hear you know, what do you think fans or analysts or whatever should be looking for and taking away in a spring training setting? Is there a certain, you know, especially for young guys, are there certain things that they should look at? Like, what do you think actually matters in a spring training setting if you're trying to take something away as a fan and or an analyst? Like, for example, yeah. Paul Urban. Urban throws 96, right? I'm ready to call him the Cy Young. Am I overreacting? Wasn't he like 92.5 average? Yeah. yeah. And then he threw 96 today. Now I'm ready to call him the Cy Young. Am I overreacting? I didn't see it. I thought it was like 94.5 when the little chart that I saw, but it is what it is. Um, no, I, I mean, I think from a young hitter's perspective, I always like, I like to see guys that can be selective in like their first couple games or take walks and things like that. Like, there's a lot of adrenaline. Adrenaline makes you swing and guys that can kind of handle that, I think is huge. And, you know, I think largely the same for pitching throwing strikes is, is such a big deal. Obviously not many guys get to big league camp unless they throw hard and you know, they have stuff and whatever, but um, you know, I struggle with that. My first couple outings in, in big league camp throwing strikes, it's just kind of a difficult thing. You have so much adrenaline and it's like as close as you can get to achieving your dreams without actually doing it. And, you know, I, I remember my first big league spring game, I wasn't in big league camp. And so I got like called over and, you know, my dad drove, you know, drove in or whatever. And, and I threw like seven strikes and 30 pitches. It was horrible. But, you know, kids that can come in and throw strikes and execute, I think, you know, largely being able to control your heartbeat and, and stuff like that is is kind of what you're looking for. And, and the rest of it will take care of themselves when they get to double A, triple A and whatever and perform. But knowing they kind of have that fabric to to be able to control their heart rate, I think is is probably the biggest thing on on both sides. And and a follow up on that, I mean, we saw Landon Knack, you know, do that. It, it, it was really impressive to see him, you know, twenty six years old, but still trying to potentially carve out a role on this big league club. Phenomenal yeah. in his two innings of work, struck out four, didn't walk anybody. The velo was back up. What did you see from Knack in that outing, and, and what have you seen from him in camp? Because this could be a guy that you know can provide some much needed innings for you guys, especially in the early part of the season here. 
Yeah, I mean, he looked great. You know, he's been around a few years now, and and we've kind of heard a lot about him. Obviously, he had like a he had a really big year off of kind of not a great year the year before, and I think he like halved his ERA, which was pretty crazy. And um, yeah, he's got good stuff. You know, I, I remember us drafting him, and I think he went to ETSU, so I was kind of familiar with them. We played him in college, and you know, not him specifically, but we had played ETSU and. Um, yeah, he's like a four pitch. I think it's four pitches, but commands them all. And and now that stuff has kind of moved up a little bit um, in terms of velocity and, and stuff like that. And, and so as long as he keeps the command, I think he's got a pretty good chance to to help us in some way. And, you know, there, there's a little bit of time between now and, and the start of the year, but um, he obviously started on the right foot. My last question for you looks like Casey Wasserman, CEO of Wasserman, uh, the agency wants to start Olympics baseball back in the Olympics. They're gearing towards 2028 being a potential, right? You look at the World Baseball Classic, you look at how successful that was, and then getting yep. baseball because it's baseball, I think, was in the Olympics back in the 90s, and then it got yep. taken out. Then you know the creation of the World Baseball Classic. But if we can get baseball back in the Olympics, that'd be perfect for everybody. Here's the one issue. Summer Olympics. It's going to be right in the middle of the season. Right. So I just wanted to hear your perspective on it, right? It's still, you know, in the works. It's nothing, you know, that's been solidified or anything. Just when you hear potentially the Olympics in the middle of the season, first, I want to know, would you go? Second, do you think that would cause problems? Yeah. I mean, there's so many logistical problems with trying to do anything in the middle of the season. I've, we had this talk of, you know, we had the world baseball classic last year and it was arguably like the most exciting one we'd ever had. And this big ending and Otani and trout and whatnot. And and I think there's kind of two ways to look at it, especially if you have to do it in the season. Like I think the preseason stuff is hard because you're just asking yourself to, to ramp up so much hard, so much faster and, and to like ultra competitive levels instead of like facing a hitter or facing your buddy. Right. Like it's just difficult to do. Um, so you, if you're going to put it in the middle of the season, it makes more sense from that side, right? But then, you know, we've got guys that are on large salaries that that are there to play for our team or whoever's team, right? And so to do a tournament, all-star breaks, what, four days, five days? Like, you can't do a tournament that quickly. Um, so you're, you're just – there's not room, right? But I guess talking the World Baseball Classic, can, could they move it? Uh, my thought has always been kind of the what, miracle on ice hockey team, right? The non 40 man guys can go and, and represent your country that way, I think is probably the easiest solution. Now, I think as a baseball fan, like, and a fan of the world baseball classic, like everyone wants to go see Paul Goldschmidt, Nolan Arenado, and, you know, team USA, you know, the best representative, most successful representative of those teams. Right. And so, having your 40 man guys or guys that would be on all-star teams, I think is, is the best product, but it, it's just hard, man. It's such a counting sport. And so you have the Olympics every four years. What if you replace your all-star game with that? Right. Well then, then you didn't play in the all-star game. Then one city's missing out on like a three day event. That's pretty big to a city. And now the baseball revenue of that all-star game is going to whatever city already has the Olympics. So like, you, you, there's just a lot of logistical stuff. Like I think every baseball player 
would absolutely love to wear a Team USA uniform, especially in an Olympic format, um, probably followed by World Baseball Classic. And, you know, I was lucky enough to go to play on the college national team for one week, and it was still one of the coolest things that I've ever been a part of. So, you know, I kind of understand what that stuff means. It's just logistically it's so hard. Um, and then you start talking about other countries that would be in the Olympics and if their players aren't on 40 man rosters like us, are they still professionals? Then you really get into like the miracle on ice where our college teams were basically playing pros. And so there's a lot of questions that, you know, I, I have a lot of respect for the guys at Wasserman. Um, and if, you know, if that guy is leading it, maybe, maybe there's a way to do it that, that makes sense. But you know, I think at some point you're going to have to have these super long qualifying rounds that are pre-Olympic, and and then you're going to have like a four or eight, eight team tournament over the All-Star break, which I, I think is fine. I think if you can move four teams into the All-Star break and it's a, you know, everybody plays each other once, and then there's a round-robin champion essentially that for the medal, like there, there's a way to do it. It's just you have to get through all these countries that want to field a team first and, um, I mean, I guess largely would feel like the World Cup in some way where you play for months and months and months and then there's like the big event. So, you know, I think it, it could be done. I just, I don't know how, I don't know what product you could end up with. Do you think, you mentioned the idea of, you know, at least one of the pros would be the fact that you don't have to rush to being ramped up. And that was the the big issue with the World Baseball yeah. Classic was, you know, you're going right into high leverage, you know, high adrenaline yeah. situations before you really would have even been going through the rest of spring training. Whereas here you're in the middle of the season, your body's ready for it. You know, you, you'd be able to make that seamless you know, transition, but then you right. mentioned all the other logistical challenges. Do you think that it makes it any more likely uh, that at least there seems to be a little bit more safety there in terms of guys are ramped up guys, bodies should be at least in game shape. Like would teams be more receptive to that? Or do you just think it's going to be something that's going to be really difficult uh, for to be sold to owners, I guess, you know, for all the reasons that you laid out. Yeah. I mean, it's the same as the world baseball classic. I, I think it's always difficult to get, get guys, you know, they do a lot of insurance stuff for the world baseball classic and insure contracts. And there's some, some squirrely stuff with that, that happens. And, and so you're, you're going to be dealing with very, very similar things. And then one guy gets hurt and it changes the complexion of everything for, for a team and for kind of the future of Olympic baseball, I guess. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting deal. I mean, you see so many of these guys, Latin American players go back and play in their winter leagues. So then there's like the argument that you could potentially do it after the season, but then what are you going to wait a month and then build back up? And there's just a lot of logistics with that as well. So, and then, then it's not in the summer, summer Olympics, right? Then it's in, October, November, you could say non-playoff guys can go play, but then you're going to eat into the the TV deals and stuff for the playoffs. So there's just a lot of a lot of stuff, but th that's part of our game, and and that's why you know the major league major league baseball season and and our playoffs are such a big deal is because it, it's kind of known that there's nowhere else in the world that that is playing that level of baseball throughout the year, and um, you know I think that's probably kind of the problem with uh, soccer for a lot of American, American people, people that grow up here is like the leagues are confusing. There's six different leagues and they're all really good. And the best players aren't in the same league. And you just kind of get this muddied water that if you didn't grow up understanding it, it's kind of hard to, to keep up. Like who's the best soccer team in the world? I don't know. I know the teams that I know the names of, right. But 
I couldn't tell you who the best team is and even what league they're in. So then you start trying to sell Olympic baseball and you're talking about 40 man and non 40 man and restricted and this and that. And it just kind of muddies it to where I think everyone would tune in. If you said, here are the best 200 players in the world from eight different countries and let's go see who wins. I think that makes a lot of sense, but um, you know, that we always, it gets thrown around a lot. Like, you know, as you move through, through the kind of career path of, of getting to the big leagues, like, Hey guys, like this is never going to be like little league again, man. It's not just show up and play. And, and so that's kind of the reality of it. But, you know, at the end of the day, most of us are, are out there trying to a live like our dream or whatever and, and support our families. And, um, you know, I think it would be a really cool feather in the cap to play for team USA, the Olympics. I just, I see a lot of, uh, a lot of hurdles. A much a much simpler and stupider question. How are the jerseys? How are the pants? Is everybody on social media freaking out too much, or is, are they really uh, that bad? I mean, there's some interesting looking stuff I've seen out there on social media, <laughs> man. I don't. Um, yeah, it's it's it, they're interesting. I, you know, I think I think there's some pretty simple things they can do to to clean them up a little bit. Obviously. You know, the name being a little bit smaller is an interesting deal. Uh, I just don't like the way that looks as much. Um, yeah, they, they're just a little more modern than, than we're kind of used to. And, you know, we've, we've had conversations with the people at Fanatics for a couple of years now and the, the Nike guys about kind of what they're doing. And, and largely the uniforms have been the same because they kind of absorbed Majestic, I guess, and, and it was the same product. And so this, this new thing's a little bit different. And, you know, there's buttons in the pockets, which I think is interesting. Um, I'm kind of curious. I've never, either kind of like a Chino, you know, um, the fit's a little different. We've, I think we've talked about it before, but we used to have like three or four measurements that you could do and then alter and, and whatnot. And I don't think you have quite as much flexibility in the fit um, as you used to, but, you know, they are a comfortable Jersey and, and, um, but, but they just are different. And I think anytime you change something that has largely been the same for 15, 20, 25 years, like people are going to have kind of a little bit of pushback. And, and, you know, I think, I think they'll probably end up changing a, a few little things and, and try and get them not see through. But, um, you know, other than that, I think we're kind of, we are where we are. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't think it's a good idea to see anybody's nuts like no, in pictures. Not Me personally, I just don't want to see it. Yeah. It's it's funny because people were complaining about the jerseys initially just on appearance, and it was like, all right, I get it. Like people don't like the jersey, and then it gets way worse when you have you know legitimate uh, you know wardrobe malfunction issues. Like you mentioned that you, you couldn't really like have it catered to you as much with as many options. Like I'd be going with the baggiest option possible for obvious reasons. Like that's a nightmare. Like you you don't want to be that guy that just like yeah, but has the see through pants. But this this is the no, tight but- pants guy. I mean, yeah, we're talking, you're, you're been screwed. Yeah. No, but then you're talking like the gray sweatpant thing, right? Where guys wear like baggy gray sweatpants. So like, I don't know if tighter is necessarily worse in this situation. I don't know. <laughs> I don't think I've struggled with it yet. Um, so I don't, I'm not really too unhappy about it, but I don't really know where you go. If you've got issues going with that stuff. All right. I think that's enough nutsack yeah. talk for, for a while. Yeah, Walker, yeah. thank you so much for coming on, my friend. Uh, this is a good one. When do we when do we get to talk to you next? I don't know. We'll see kind of what the schedule looks like. We'll figure, figure something out. 
Yeah. Well, looking forward to the uh, the report on the uh, live ABs and and you know how you took care of Vargas. You know, humbled him a little yep. bit. Uh, looking forward. Looking forward to hearing the feedback on that. Best of luck, you know, getting back in those live ABs and, and getting on the mound. And we're looking forward to the next update. All right, fellas, we'll talk to you.